Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. I think it was about a month ago I uh, got to uh, MC a benefit, a fundraising benefit, for the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Uh, it was a benefit called Vicious, and uh, it was really quite an evening. I, now, I've been to the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art before in the past. Uh, they always do really interesting exhibitions. And uh, this benefit to this party was just an incredible event uh, to raise money for this, uh, the, the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Now, I got to meet the executive director, uh, Christian Anderson. Uh, seemed like an interesting fellow to me, uh, but we didn't really have much of a chance to talk. Uh, just met him in passing, kind of uh, in a meeting uh, before the benefit. And then we chatted a little bit at the benefit, which is just basically a big party. Party, a big, uh, you know, a big gala party with uh, a lot of great food and entertainment. And then, the, you know, there was an auction and all of that. And But I just kept saying to myself, this seems like an interesting guy, this Christian Anderson. And uh, so I decided, well, let's uh, get him on the Let's Go Eat show. He's more than an interesting guy. He's a really an intellect I was just uh, pretty much blown away by the the intellectual capabilities of this guy as we uh, chatted about what it means to be the uh, uh, director of a museum or an, a well, it's a museum. It's not an art gallery. It's a museum. The Utah Museum, Umoka is what everybody calls it uh, that knows about it. If you've never been there, you're missing out. It's free. I bet you don't even know where it is, do you? You don't know where Umoka is, the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Well, you listen to this episode of the Let's Go Eat show, you're going to find out where it is, what they do, but you're going to find out what contemporary art is going on right here in Salt Lake and, well, what contemporary art is going on in Utah. You know, my only regret with this interview is that uh, during the course of the interview, Christian uh, mentions that he... Uh, used to be a performer. And I meant to ask him in the interview, uh, oh, what kind of performing did you do before you became a museum director? And as it turns out, he used to be a street performer. Uh, you know, I mean, he used to do apparently juggling and, and magic and uh, fire eating and all of that kind of stuff and traveled all around the country doing that. And I didn't ask him about it. And uh, uh, that—that's uh, I, I regret that because we could well maybe we'll do a whole show about Christian Anderson and his uh, street performing days and his but but for now we're just going to talk about museum, uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art and Contemporary Art and what that all means here in Utah. So here it is, uh, the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, uh, and it's the Let's Go Eat show. I'm Bill Allred. And enjoy. You know I just wanted to come back at the tail end of this just real quickly and say, uh, you know, I said, enjoy at the very end of that. 
and I hate that. I'm sorry I said it, because I really don't like it when waiters and waitresses, uh, when they bring you your food at the table and they set it down and they go, here you go, there you go, and they say, enjoy, like you're supposed to enjoy. You know, I hope you enjoy this interview, but it it's certainly not required. I think you'll enjoy it, but you don't have to enjoy it. So anyway, again, here's Christian Anderson, the executive director of the Utah Museum of Contemporary Enjoy it or don't. Christian Anderson, executive director of the of Umoka, which is what everybody calls it. Yep, it's not just a tasty coffee beverage. It's also a museum of contemporary art. It does sound like a tasty coffee beverage, doesn't it, Umoka? It absolutely does. Like, you know, sort of an apres ski kind of thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. I'll have a, I'll have a, a cup of Umoka, please. Mm. It, it almost sounds like one of those uh, decaffeinated beverages that the LDS folk like. You know, Puro and... Anyway, uh, it's the Let's Go Eat show, and we're here with Christian Anderson um, in uh, the uh, Cafe at 50 West, where we often have the Let's Go Eat show these days because it's a place where you can go eat, and it's convenient for us because uh, it's right downstairs from our studios uh, where we do uh, radio from hell. I was telling Jonathan, the guy who runs the cafe, that them opening this so close has made us lazy. Yeah. We used to go out to re- go out more to restaurants around in the area, and we will we'll get back to that. But uh, but it is late. You know, I'm working upstairs, and I go, oh, you know, we can just go downstairs and record the show. And yeah, you, well, you've never been here. So. I've never been here, and it's perfect for me. You know, it's about three blocks, and of course, uh, Salt Lake City blocks are basically six times a normal city block. So, you know, I got a good uh, a good walk down. You Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, located. Uh, maybe a lot of people don't know, uh, right by Symphony Hall. Mm-hmm. Right next door, just to the east. How long has it been there? Well, that building, the building that we're currently in, uh, opened in 1979. So it was built as part of the bicentennial build-out of the Salt Palace. And so I think they broke ground in 77, opened in 79. And was it always meant to be what it is? Yep, it was built as then the Salt Lake Art Center. And, of course, the Salt Lake Art Center, um, we changed our name to the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art several years ago. Uh, But 2016, and I want to say it's February... Early February of 2016 will be our 85th anniversary as an organization. So, really, yes, sir. So when, now you, but you're you're new to the place, right? A year and a half. No. Oh. Mm-hmm. So 85 years ago, somebody started the Utah Arts Center, Correct. and what? And where was it then? Um, is it Reservoir Park? Is that South oh, Temple up and in, up in Finch? Yeah, Finch where Lane. Finch Lane is. So that was built as the original home of the Salt Lake Art Center. So that building was built as an art center. And then um, we were there for many years until we moved to our new building. So we've sort of only had two homes, really. Uh, yeah, the, the Finch Lane uh, Gallery. And I think they still maybe do occasionally little art shows up at Finch Lane, yep. too, don't they? Yeah, they do them. I went to somewhere. Yeah, they do them all the time. It's now the home of uh, the Salt Lake City Arts Council. Ah. So the city's, uh, the city's folks that bring, you know, Twilight concerts and such things mm. are up there now. And, you know, Lane Gallery is up there, and they're open all the time with exhibitions. Yeah. Um, part of the city's effort to support local arts and artists. Um, so uh, whose idea now was now was the Utah Art Center, which became the Utah Museum mm. of Contemporary Art? Salt Lake Art Center, but yeah. Salt Lake Art Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it always designed to be a contemporary, a contemporary art venue? 
Um, I don't know that you would say that it was designed to be a contemporary art venue in the way that we are an exhibition space. Mm-hmm. Um, it was definitely designed as a, initially to be a community art center that both displayed current work and did lessons. You know, we still do photography lessons at UMOCA. Uh, the Salt Lake Art Center Photography School is still there. But they used to do a lot more painting classes and watercolor classes yeah, and all of that. Ceramics. Yeah. Um, so it was founded by a uh, LDS woman named Alta Jensen. And in the late 20s and early 30s, um, she looked, at, looked to put Salt Lake City on the cultural map. And one of their first exhibitions was an uh, exhibition of nudes, actually. And so. Really? Yeah, there, there was a bit of a backlash, and she made a very impassioned speech that said, you know, what does Salt Lake City want to be? Does it want to forever sort of be a cultural backwater, or does it want to be a place that is in the national discussion for what's going on in the arts? And this was a, you know, this was a, a pious LDS lady back in 1931. And so she really sort of planted the flag on the fact that artistic expression uh, in the visual arts is something that should be central to Salt Lake City in Utah. What was, yeah. what was her name? Alta Jensen. Alta Jensen. What? Alta Jensen. There should be a statue of her. Tell, yeah, tell, there really should be. There a is. Statue. It's just very abstract, and you don't know it because it's contemporary. <laughs> no. I'll, I'll yeah. leave you guess. I'll leave you guess what it is. It's a nude somewhere, but you wouldn't even know it's a nude. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, here's my question. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to figure it out through this whole conversation, but I want to know what it takes to start an art museum. Does somebody art- with a lot of art have to die and give it all to somebody who starts it? How does, I mean, and what's the difference between an art museum and an art gallery? Oh, so, yeah, so now we're getting go. now we're getting into some uh, uh, questions of really parsing language. Yeah, so we're hard hitting. You're hard hitting. Well, yeah. I mean, the fundamental thing about my organization, whether you would call it a museum or a gallery, so we are not a collecting institution. So if you look at my friends and colleagues up at the UMFA, you know they are very much a collecting institution. They're always looking to add work that expands their mission of presenting an encyclopedic history of of art as that's, well. That's the Utah, excuse me. Sorry, that. UMFA, Utah Museum of Fine Arts up at the university. Yeah. Um, with, you know, special emphasis on arts of the West and Intermountain West, naturally, mm-hmm. because that's where they are. Uh, so for us, we don't collect. We are more of a Kunsthall by mission, which is a place that just displays work without a collection. We do have a little bit of a historic legacy collection. Being an 85-year-old institution, people die or bequeath art, and there are some works there, but that isn't fundamentally key to our mission. So in that way, we differ from what you might think of as a traditional museum versus a gallery. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things that puts us more in realm with our museum friends is we are a 501c3. We are and always have been a not-for-profit institution. We're actually, and we're free of charge to go into. Whereas when I think of galleries, there can certainly be non-profit galleries, I think. um, Yeah, most of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, But so we are a tax-exempt organization. And, you know, given our size, we're a lot more like a museum, too. You know, we're, we're tens of thousands of square feet versus if you go to a commercial gallery like the Phillips Gallery or whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be where selling is part of their key mission. You know, it's just a lot of it has to do with mission differentiation. Uh, so a gallery is basically where an artist, uh, usually a, well, not necessarily a living artist, but an artist uh, will display his or her work for sale. Usually. Yeah, and then the gallery takes a... A commission on anything that is sold. Mm-hmm. Okay. Correct. Usually, you can't you can't usually walk into a museum and make an offer on no no no. Give you well, fifty you could. million for the Mona Lisa or whatever. That, that's that would be considered pretty gauche. Yeah, and I don't think it would get you too terribly far. No. Yeah. Um, you know, you um, 
uh, you know a lot, and we'll, I want to talk more about the history of Umoka. You you obviously know, did uh, uh, your homework. You <laughs> you've only been there a year and a half. Um, how many directors has it had? Oh you know? man, uh, in its totality, I have no idea. Um, one, two, three. For, I've met at least four of the ex-directors, um, and so, yeah, I would say in the last 15 years, it's probably had about four or five directors. Uh, Rick Collier was there for many years. I don't even remember if it was 10, 12, 15, mm-hmm. quite a while. Uh, then there was a director named Heather Farrell, who was there for probably not quite a year. Adam Price was there for about three years. Uh, Maggie Willis was an interim director for a year until I came. So you've you, so you've done homework to you you found the history you mm-hmm. you've studied it. Did you do that before you got here? Um, to a certain extent, absolutely. I mean, one you know, in an eighty-five year organization, um, when you're coming for a job interview, you certainly have to know and acknowledge the history of an organization and realize its impact. Um, I moved here from Seattle, and Seattle to Salt Lake City. There's also a lot of um, the culture is a little bit different. So there was a lot of cultural homework, seeing how our organization and its mission fit into not only the Salt Lake City metro area, but it is the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. So once you change that, that what was the Salt Lake Art Center to the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, what is the tacit agreement that you have with the general public to represent all of the arts in Utah? Like what's going on in Carbon County? What's mm-hmm. going, up in, going on up in Logan? Um, you know, those are the sort of things that if you are the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, you nominally have to have to care about. I mean, when you run a nonprofit, you are you sort of exist in the public trust. Sure. And in fact, the uh, the attorney general is the person that really has oversight fundamentally over all nonprofits because we are we are public trust institutions. So uh, let's talk about Christian Anderson, then um, your background and how you come to this job and. How you come to this line of work? Uh, where did you Where did you grow up? And- um, I was I was born on a cold, windy, snowy day, uh, which is actually true in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, mm. uh, in a town called Iron Mountain, which uh, you know has had one stoplight at the time. I think they're up to two or three. I heard that they got a McDonald's next to the Shopco, but uh, you know I haven't been back in a couple of years. Still uh, have family up there. I have cousins up there, but uh, when I was pretty young, we moved to Minneapolis. So really, I grew up for the first you know, 25, 30 years of my life in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Mm-hmm. I went to the University of Minnesota as an undergrad. Uh, started out, failed out, had some wacky adventures, uh, then came back and, and ended up getting uh, degrees in ancient Greek and Mesopotamian art and archaeology and history. Well, really useful stuff. Really useful stuff. I naturally, I became a house painter when I graduated. Yeah. Why? Why that? Why? What? Just what fascinated you about Mesopotamia and ancient Greece? And well, you know, I had always really enjoyed history as a as a kid, and I started out as a history major, and I wanted to. I had to take elective credits, and as I'm sure anyone who's been through college can tell you, you have to take elective credits. And I figured that archaeology would be a good dovetail in history, that you're studying a lot of the same things. And so really I was looking for an easy credit that I didn't have to put too much effort into and would get a decent grade. Um, but rapidly I found out that my brain actually works better in object-based thinking, which is much more key to sort of archaeology. I mean, I really love text-based history, but thinking in objects, images, and artifacts is sort of the way that my brain worked. I really enjoyed classical archaeology because... Um, you know, I, I would love to say that it's Indiana Jones, and maybe that's part of it. But 
there's something to be said when you're on excavation. You get to pull up like a whole statue, and it's got writing. I've also done uh, Native American archaeology, and I have great respect for my friends who do Native American archaeology. But you're pulling up tiny potsherds that look mm-hmm. like bark, and I don't know. There's just something inherently sexier to me to be able to just go dig up an ancient Greek city. So, yeah, right. There's only so much you can. So many times you can dig up an arrowhead and be yeah. really excited about it. Yeah, and, and so it, so it was pure a pure decision of I thought that that was a more interesting way to go, and the way that this sort of is relevant and dovetailing to where I am today is um, for my archaeological fieldwork. I ended up in Cyprus, and not a lot of Americans have. Cyprus isn't really high on a lot of American radars. It's an island, right? It's it's an island. Yep. Um, Just south of Turkey, and this is sort of what comes to play. Um, We were supposed to go to we were supposed to go dig uh, a Greek city in Israel, but the second Intifada happened, and they were shelling, so they wouldn't let American students go. So we ended up in Cyprus. But Cyprus is a divided island, um, and there's a demilitarized zone that cuts the island in half that's patrolled by the UN, and so you have a Turkish northern Cyprus and a Greek southern Cyprus. the Greek side is independent, but they're Greek-speaking and Greek culture. And what was interesting to me is I was digging up, um, I was digging up artifacts that were two and a half thousand years old. But because it was a divided island and there was very much political tension between the north and the south, I was fascinated to see how their museums really used um, these artifacts as cultural weapons to say, like, I was in the Greek side, to say, like, Greece is good and Turkey is bad. And it's, you know, that's purely anachronistic. I mean, two and a half thousand years ago, these sort of cultural divisions didn't exist. So it was fascinating to see this contemporary overlay on these older things to really hammer home um, a particular political point, which, when I came back to the United States, I was really, really interested in museums as places that shape cultural identity, um, are sort of can get involved in in the culture wars and what is our the concept of neutrality you know i'm i'm a person that sort of believes that there's no such thing as a as as neutral you know organizations have a point of view and you're better off to you're better off to articulate and admit that point of view and move forward than to try to pretend that there's something called neutrality Mm -hmm. so i was really really fascinated by museums as cultural as agents of cultural change and cultural dissemination so i went and got my master's degree in museum studies at the university of colorado Mm. and um when I got there, I just happened to be in the right place in the right time and having done some nonprofit museum work where they had a small gallery whose director had left. And so while I was getting my master's degree, I was able to run this gallery. And that was a contemporary art gallery. And so I actually discovered that working in the contemporary art field, the questions that I was interested in with museums as this, these agents of cultural change, I could have those dialogues directly with artists and really be reacting directly to the, to society and cultures around me and and be sort of reflexive, but also help to sort of push the needle a little bit on social issues that I was passionate about. So um, so ra- ra- rather than study how art in the past had changed culture or had responded to, to the culture around it, you, you, could, you could see it, how it worked, mm-hmm. you know, living. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I found it much more satisfying to be engaged in, in contemporary dialogue rather than, you know, working in things that were two and a half thousand years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still love that, but to me, it's just more engaging and meaningful. And now I've been in the contemporary art world longer than I was in the classical art world. So I've been doing this for over a decade now. So mm-hmm. so, so you uh, you start working in this contemporary gallery, you get mm-hmm. your degree, and, and you, you decide, this is what I'm going to do. As a, I mean, it's a pretty, mm-hmm. it's a pretty rarefied, pretty specialized area to say yeah. I'm going to be a contemporary art 
guy. And mm-hmm. I'm, I want to direct contemporary art museums. Yeah, I mean, it is it is pretty specialized. But I mean, if it's something that you if it's something that you love and that you're passionate about, you'll find you'll find the job and opportunity. I ended up going to the University of Washington to um, to do my PhD work in contemporary art theory through their art history program. Uh, I never finished it, but I ended up um, being a gallery director uh, in Seattle for, I don't know, six and a half years mm-hmm. or something to that effect um, before, you know, you know, some time happened and then I ended up out here. So, um, yeah, so I've, I've been... I talk to a lot of students, and I go into a lot of undergraduate classes, and they want me to talk about internships and career development. And I've had a very circuitous path, um, and I've been very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And I hear that a lot, but I've also been done the front-end work of volunteering and interning when I was early on in my mm-hmm. career, being present at gallery strolls, strolls, being present at events to when those opportunities came that I had the both people knew who I was and I also had enough of a skill set to bring to bear. So it's a little of column A and a little column B. It's a, uh, I think it's uh, interesting. And uh, Dylan, would you mind um, getting you some water? Well, <laughs> they, I, I also uh, ordered some black coffee, which they never... Yeah, I can I can go track yeah. that down. And I don't want to... You know, we don't ever stop the interview. And, and as I do an aside here, uh, asking you to go get the black coffee, you're <clears throat> like I'm also giving, affording our guest a chance to eat a little bit of his hummus and, and pita uh, here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and is there anything you need? Uh, no, I'm, I'm doing good. Thank you for the, uh, thank you for the pita, break, pita bite break. Sure. Ooh, that's a hard one to say. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's, uh, it's see, uh, speaking of it being kind of a, I mean, it's a, I wouldn't think there are a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs that in this field available. I mean, is there, are, are there a lot of opportunities to be a, a director, an executive director of a contemporary art museum? I would think not. Um, I haven't done a full survey of how many of my colleagues are out there. You know, 50 to 100, I suppose. Um, if you are not in a New York or a Los Angeles, certainly um, most cities probably wouldn't have multiple organizations oh. that have a person like me. Um, colleges and universities are always a way to go. You mm-hmm. know, um, they're galleries, although they certain, if they're tying back into the pedagogical needs of the university, they will have an encyclopedic bent because you're teaching ancient Greek art and you're teaching all this sort of stuff. But uh, colleges and universities are always also, you know, tend to be forward-thinking institutions depending on the college and university. And so usually they're often pushing a contemporary... Um, a contemporary art program in parallel with a historical art program. Mm-hmm. So, let's talk about what the job entails. Uh, I mean, there. I. I mean, what are, what do you what do you do? You know, there some, must be certain requirements that you have to do, but they, then, I mean, there there must then there are things that you never dreamed you would have to do. Um, I think being the executive director of any organization, and especially a nonprofit, there are certain similarities. Um, certainly, you know, I am the direct liaison to the board, so our board of trustees um, helps set forth policies and visions, and, and I have a large hand in, in, in shaping that because you know, this is what I am trained to do. And, um, so then we also have budget issues, financial things, uh, human resources stuff, checking in with all of the departments of the museum and supporting their efforts too. Um, so a lot of what I do is very administrative things that that aren't terribly uh, exciting, but just go with being an executive director of any organization. 
Uh, that being said, I get to do a lot of studio visits uh, with artists, and I absolutely love that. Um, I get a chance to what, go. What does that? What does that mean? I mean, so um, in a studio visit, I'm going to uh, either an artist is going to reach out to me, and if artists are listening, never hesitate to reach out to a museum uh, to come and look at your work the worst thing they would do is say no and i always try to say yes as best i can um so an artist will reach out to me or i might see their work online or somewhere and i want to go talk to them learn more about what it is they do because usually if i'm seeing their work in passing maybe i'm seeing one or two works it might not be representative of the entire body of what it is that they've done so i like to go down spend a half an hour to an hour really see what it is that they are creating as a maker and then really understand why they are creating it and have a discussion mm-hmm. um sometimes you you know, sometimes they want feedback, and, and I will try to give them as honest an opinion as I can, realizing that um, in my line of work, a lot of times I think there aren't any right answers, but sometimes there are wrong answers. So I try to, you know, I try to be as honest as possible. Oftentimes they'll ask me for help with a proposal for something they're submitting, read over their artist statement, and, and then figure out how, you know, if there's a... If, if there's a spot for them in an upcoming exhibition at the museum that uh, makes sense thematically. Um, so, yeah, it, it's really sitting down with the people who make the work that I am, uh, am privileged to work with all the time and really see what they're doing. That's a kind of a, um, that's a, kind of a position that, to me, would carry a lot of responsibility, talking to artists and uh, kind of trying to curate and mm-hmm. talk to them about what they do. And some of them, uh, I'm sure, are mature artists that are, are you know, th- this is what I do, and sure. this is, you know, and they're secure in what mm-hmm. they do. But I think a lot of times you probably talk to artists who are, what do you, what do you think? And, and am I going the right way? And you know, yeah. And I think that you know, I've lived in, I've lived in several major metropolitan areas now, and and I, I actually think that there's a lot more similarities in terms of the culture in Utah and Minnesota than there was between Utah and Seattle, for instance. I think that we, that those of us who live here we're pretty nice and we're pretty polite, and it's not in most people's general DNA to be like, well, actually, you know, what you just did is pretty horrible. Like that's one of the worst <laughs> things that I've ever seen. Um, so it, so you need to be able to give feedback to people and you know, if i've seen somebody do a work that i saw another artist do in seattle or that i know an mm-hmm. artist in new york is doing um you know it's i can't really say like wow i think that's incredibly derivative or somebody else has done this better i'm like you know why don't you take a look at this artist see what they're doing and how this is in and sort of, sort of more gently sort of oh, instruct God. them yeah oh crap somebody's already doing, doing this, this. Yeah. yeah have you ever had to say to somebody just yeah, I really think you should go get your real estate license because you wouldn't do that. No, I I, I don't know that it. You never know someone's potential, right? So even if I'm going into a studio visit, there are people whose work I'm seeing at this point that I would probably not champion. That being said, if I can say something and say, you know, your technique, you know, I really think you should work on this type type of thing. A year or two from now, you know, they might be discouraged and never come back to it and be like that. Christian Anderson is a total asshole and and da da da. And so it might either encourage them to get better. They might stop. I, I mean, I I'm not. I don't think I ever want to be the one that says you should never do this. I might be the one that says you need to work harder on this particular technique and then come back to me. But I mean, who am I to who am I to say what someone should be doing with their? Well, let me ask career? you that. Who are you? 
<laughs> to, to do that. Uh, and I and I ask you that from the standpoint of so you you've you've looked at a lot of work in Seattle over a, a, a goodly period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, Minneapolis um, has a, uh, I assume, a pretty good art scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've had experience in New York, uh, looking at art. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you you have you have been in the art world sure. uh, a, a long time now. Uh, first of all, how do uh, can you give me a, a kind of an, a fair assessment of yourself as an uh, someone who can assess art and, a, and an art critic? I think that, wow, you're, you're asking me to be very self-reflexive here. Um, so there, there's a couple different worlds, in, right, art worlds. So I have never been, I, I will say straight up front, I've never been in the commercial art world. I've always been in the nonprofit mm-hmm. side and always in galleries that didn't have selling as their occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, we were working with artists who might be dealing with something thematic or pushing a social issue or whatever it happened to be. And so the the mission of the artist and the expressiveness of the art without thinking about a commercial consideration have always been first and foremost in my mind. And that's more so where my skill lies. I, I can look at something and I certainly can recognize technique. Like I know if someone has the ability to paint well. And this has nothing to do with what they paint in terms of the subject matter of the painting itself. But I've been in this industry long enough that I can see good technique for bronze casting. I can see good technique in sculpture, in ceramics, in photography in painting. So there there's a there's a construction side of the making of an object that I feel qualified to mm-hmm. assess. Okay. Uh, and then there's a thematic side in discussing with artists that I can I feel very qualified to 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 speak on mm-hmm. and to address. Um, but then there's that whole commercial arm and that's sort of talking with what you said earlier. Um, People are always obsessed with the value of things in museums. Like, what, what's the Mona Lisa worth? And it's, it's fascinating because we, we don't particularly think that way. We have insurance coverage, but that's not what I think on. So yeah. that's a whole world that I am not at all qualified to, to the weigh com- in on. The commercial success or lack thereof. Correct. Yeah, or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's just nothing that I've ever weighed I, into. Yeah. And, and, and I, now, I'm very impressed with that answer. I think that's a really good <laughs> self-assessment. That's an excellent self-assessment. And I asked that question uh, to preface this question. Mm-hmm. How then do you, as you, what do you think of the art scene as you've been here for a year and a half? Uh, how do you assess the art scene in Salt Lake and, and in Utah in general? So Utah, Utah has a history, and and I don't think that this is this is not a bad thing. Even as the director of a contemporary art museum, I think people think when I say this that I'm being critical, and I'm not. Um, we have a long history here of really, really good landscape painting, both in oils and watercolors, um, figurative sculpture, you know, portraiture. Things that fall under sort, and even actually, people I've seen people do beautiful still lifes that live in this state. People that that work in sort of very traditional um, painting, photography, and sculptural um, themes. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's been that's an incredible that's an incredible strength of of, of what it is that we produce here. Um, contemporary art, I've you know realizing that we're only a metro area of what 1.2 1.3 million how many people are in the state of utah five four or five million um you know there's there's not a lot of people over a lot of space and i think that we are 
um, between what we're doing at UMOCA, what Quack is doing, the fact that you have a contemporary art curator up at the UMFA, um, believe it or not, what Jeff Lamson's doing down at BYU, um, what they're doing up in Logan at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum. Um, I think that there are people, and actually in the Kimball, um, there are people, I can think of six organizations right off the top of my head, um, that while they... Well, contemporary art might not be their sole focus, with the exception of us and Quack, that they have people that are... Quack. Oh, Quack. Quack, uh, It used to stand for the Central Utah Art Center, and it was down in Ephraim. And then um, they, about two years ago now, I think they moved up to Salt Lake City. So now Quack just sort of, I think, stands for Quack. Uh, And they're on on, CUAC, um, not to be confused with the queer aquatic uh, group, which is also Quack. Right. so they're on second uh, east and second south, and so they, you know, they are also a only contemporary art venue. Okay. And so thinking about the fact that in a metro area of this size, that I can name six people or organizations that are dedicating, if not a hundred percent of their resources, some of their resources to promoting contemporary art. I think that that's fantastic. I do think, and I, and this is something that I have seen in every city that basically isn't New York and Los Angeles. I think everybody suffers from a certain level of. Uh, Second city syndrome that I find frustrating, and I don't think that that's just true in visual arts. I think that that's true if you start looking at politics, government, and maybe not for film because film is this is kind of the epicenter for that's not Los Angeles, right? I mean, we have mm-hmm. a really, really robust film program here in, in in Utah, but everyone's comparing themselves to what's going on in Los Angeles. Are you, like, are you saying that there's an inferiority complex? Correct. Yeah, and, and I find that to be not particularly productive. I think if you are always comparing yourselves to New York or Los Angeles, cities of 9 million people with long-established, huge cultural programs, philanthropic communities, and much more government support, you're going to perpetually be frustrated. And I think that there's a lot of stuff to, to celebrate here. That being said, I also see with that second city syndrome and inferior, inferiority complex, sometimes people are unwilling to be critical because there's this concept of what what a scene needs, whatever that scene is, whether it's the food scene or the visual arts scene or whatever needs nurturing, you know it, we don't want to squelch something in its in its early sense and I think that sometimes when you with the best of intentions you try to nurture things, there are, there are times when stuff just isn't that great and um, so it, it's sort of that two-edged sword of, of being a growing metro area that is outside of the giant spheres of Los Angeles and New York. But again, it was the same thing in Seattle. It was the same thing in Minneapolis. It, you know, this this is not something that is is unique to Utah, mm-hmm. but it is something that Utah also also has yeah. in its DNA. Yeah. Another great answer. <laughs> I you know yeah I, I uh, it's uh, I I'm um, I'm impressed with these answers because I think. Um, you're exactly what I would want as somebody to curate a museum and to, to curate art and to, to you know, to, because you have to look at these things critically and 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 understand the DNA that goes into it. Yeah. And, and it's a tough balance. So, you know, like I was yeah. previously saying, I'm not going to tell somebody that they're such a bad artist that they should go get yeah. their real estate license. But at the same time, I, you know, how do you balance? How do you balance critique? And constructive criticism that helps both an artist and an art scene grow with, at the same time, not just giving people platitudes and telling them they're great and continuing down a path mm-hmm. of mediocrity. I mean, anytime any organization in any industry, nonprofit or not, wants to be taken seriously, 
there has to be some self-reflectivity. There has to be constructive criticism. You have to make mistakes. And from those mistakes, you have to grow. But you have to acknowledge those mistakes. You can't just pretend that they didn't happen. That's, that's, how, you, that's how you build a stronger organization, city, state, culture, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, it's, I've kind of always thought there's something about Salt Lake that bugs me. And kind of recently, I've been thinking along that. Like, I think your, your observation about the art scene is just very true overall of, like, Salt Lake City. And um, I think it's kind of like a, a, se- a second city syndrome of really a group of people, a city really, really wanting to be like uh, Seattle or, or um, you know, in the next step up in Portland. the tier of cities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Portland. Portland or uh, something like that. Maybe even Denver. And, like, just, like, really getting cl- – being getting close to that like we're getting there but not quite there but they're kind of like walking around like well you know, it's bitter about it or you want to you want to you want to see we he grew up in ogden and i grew up in ogden you want to talk about a city that has an inferiority complex you know it's just no like, way no no, uh, no we're just ogden yeah that's very different that's or that's very different than salt lake saying which is, no, we're we're be- we're just like denver yeah. whereas ogden ogden people well, we're a little not. bit ashamed of themselves yeah. they have they're yeah. able to critique each other they know like what okay we yeah, we, we don't deserve to, nice things we need we're to work ogden. on this yeah. like i don't know well, we don't we don't deserve salt lake nice doesn't say that you know you're o- you're only a couple years from being the statistical ogden salt lake city provo metroplex right. which yeah. i mean it's already kind of there yeah. in yeah. terms of looking at development up and down the wasatch front um, and what do each of these, uh, what do each of these entities bring to the bring to the discussion? Um, so, yeah. so uh, uh, go back. Let's go back to what Christian Anderson does as executive director of the of Umoka. So he visits artists. Uh, what, who decides, and how are the decisions made about what shows to bring into the into the museum? So I have a curator of exhibitions, and her name is Rebecca Maxim. And so she is the person that is charged with setting the curatorial agenda for things that happen inside of Umoka's walls. Um, I have a curator of public engagement and education, uh, Jared Stephenson, and he is principally tasked with thinking about Umoka's um, partnerships outside of the walls and when we do you know, community-based art engagements. And then there's myself, um, who you know weighs in from time to time. So really, Becca's the one that sets the tone uh, for for things inside. Although Jared will curate an exhibition from time to time, I'll curate an exhibition from time to time. And so we really have a you know if, if you figure there's three of us on our curatorial team, mm-hmm. um, we all sort of lend our expertise and thoughts. But really, it's uh, Becca's you know Becca's final call for things that go on inside. How is it done? I mean, how do you decide? How uh, there are certain. <laughs> what did you just roll? Uh, no, I, I, no, I just I, I, I sort of did the finger around the table because it's a lot like this. You know, we'll be having lunch or we'll be having a meeting, and um, someone will spark an interesting nugget of conversation that we want to explore. Our main gallery exhibition that just came down, uh, Panopticon. Um, Becca did a fantastic job on it. Uh, that came out of a conversation where we were talking about you know the NSA data site out at Bluffdale and. Um, Pete Ashdown, who is the founder of X Mission, um, is a friend of ours, and thinking about Google Fiber coming into town, and so sort of sitting around and talking about these current events, and then saying, if we are the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, let's think about things that that are salient to Utah and our contemporary conversations, and let's tackle those through 
artistic exploration. So Panopticon was born, which was this exhibition that was all about net neutrality, data mining, internet surveillance, which I think resonates in Utah on a lot of different levels. And not only just Utah, but it's, it's a huge contemporary conversation about where we want our society to go. So really, it just sort of breaks out of conversation of people sitting around and talking and then saying hey let's you know let's tackle this so you set that as the as the what do you call it the theme yeah for, sure. for a show sure theme yeah so then how do you where do you find the work that goes into making up that show becca spends a lot of time uh doing research so you know as you're in the industry you you develop develop a network of connections and colleagues nationally and internationally so you might send out an email to them um, we go to uh, art fairs and exhibitions um, out of state so art basel in miami uh jared and becca and myself all went down there uh, last december so we're going to that's a huge art it's the largest in the united states it's massive and so we go down and we look at artists and and take a lot of notes and look at a lot of art in uh, in three or four days and so we see people that we might not have known there and then um and then you have uh, God bless the internet, speaking of the internet, mm-hmm. in terms of what it does for being able to do research today that you didn't have those same tools you know, 20 years ago mm-hmm. uh, when we were all working on slides and you'd have to call a gallery and say, send me some slides of this and everyone would be looking at one of her slides. So. Um, but she spends a lot of time doing research and figuring out which artists would fit best with a the theme and why. And anytime you're designing an exhibition, which is why I um, every day I'm so impressed with what uh, Becca and Jared do is you're building a jigsaw puzzle like let's say you're building a 50 piece jigsaw puzzle and you want it to look like something when you're done but the 50 pieces that you're using come from 50 different sets and and so you're trying to make a whole out of all of these disparate things and you have to you have to honor the individual artist so you have to honor their artistic intent um, and and highlight and educate what they do, but at the same time you have to overlay that with sort of a, a curatorial voice as to you know why are you selecting these ten or twenty artists because otherwise you could just select ten or twenty random artists. You know the curatorial vision is what holds the whole thing together. So there's a lot of research and a lot of different sort of tensions at play, and um, there I think that there's a lot more that goes into the curator's job than people think. As much as it is eating wine and or drinking wine and eating fancy cheese at parties. Uh, that's only a small percentage. So, so, so you, and, and then you have to, uh, and then somebody has to figure out how to hang all those things or, or, or display them in a, in a way that's, that's pleasing and, and makes sense and thematically and all of that. Yeah, so Becca will lay out the exhibitions, or Jared or myself, depending on who's curating any, any exhibition. So that's, the curator will lay it out. And then there's an entire career path called preparator, and preparators are the people that are interested in getting whatever the art is on the wall, building the plinths, getting, if it's a digital work, getting all of that up. So they're the ones that are sort of manifest uh, the hanging and the execution. But the, the planning and stuff is usually done by the curator. So when you call for entries, mm-hmm. I guess that's what you would say it is. You call for entries to these shows or you, you the, contact artists. Yeah, or, depend, yeah, either way, depending on the exhibition. Uh, and you contact them and say, we would really like to display your work for this show we're doing, and you explain it to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they say, no, I'm not, no, I would assume. Or do they almost always say, oh, we'd love to send you our piece? Almost always they say they would love to send the piece with the exception. Uh, usually it's if it doesn't work out, it's usually scheduling conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very rarely in the art world... Um, 
you know, scheduling or money, you know, one of the two. I, very rarely does someone get an opportunity and, and not want to take it, especially, at, you know, at a museum. Um, so we, so, the, so the opportunity to have your piece shown mm-hmm. is, is, is great. Yeah, absolutely. There's a great, uh, so, so then what's the money? So, you know, we have, a partic- we, we have budgets for every exhibition, and out of that budget will have to come shipping, uh, wall vinyl, uh, marketing materials, um, food for a reception. So thinking about what the cost to actualize an exhibition is, um, there are solid costs there. At, at UMOCA, we like to make sure that every artist involved um, gets some sort of artist stipend. It's, yeah. never, it's never as much as I would like to give people. Um, but realizing that artists um, are artists work hard and deserve to get paid for their production, and it's not just um, you know it's not just us saying this is good exposure. You know, I I came from Minnesota and, and I was a performer once upon a time, and I people would always want me to do a show, and they'd be like, "This is good exposure." I'm sure you've gotten this. Oh yeah. And uh, I always used to Many say, times. "This is Minnesota. People die from exposure." Mm-hmm. You know, and and really, so really wanting to at least acknowledge them with something that they're that we are paying for their creative endeavor. Carrie, Carrie, my partner on the radio, and I, I, for, I forget who he gets this quote from. Uh, it's uh, never do anything you're good at for free. Oh, that's the Joker from Batman. Oh, the Joker from yeah. Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Never it's do anything you're good at for free. Mm-hmm. Heath Ledger, yeah. If you're good at something, never do it for free. That's yeah. what he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so the artist gets a gets some sort of a. A, a bit of money for mm-hmm. for the for the work and and, and the exposure and, and you know and I guess that sometimes people might even buy something even though it's yours is not a gallery sure which uh, is designated to sell things but. yeah if you really like an artist's work that you see at Umoka thanks to the internet you can look them up and you can figure out who either their dealer is or how to contact them and then you know that transaction would happen away from it probably happens yeah you know, I'm sure I'm sure it does yeah. I'm sure it does yeah. um, so and and that's great. I mean, that's one of the positive things for artists coming out of that is they do get people to to see their work. How many shows? Um, how many? So Pan, Panopticon mm-hmm. that there was another one or two installations at the same time, right? Yeah, we have five different gallery spaces. So Panopticon was in our main gallery. Um, our second largest gallery uh, is the Street Gallery, uh, which was named because it was on street level once upon a time. So there you go. Um, and so for that one, um, so the main gallery exhibition is going to feature national and international artists. Um, it's just a larger scale. Panopticon, or sorry, Street Gallery is going to be sort of local to national artists. Um, it might be a single artist show. Um, we have the doctoral prize for contemporary painting that is coming up in September that will be in there. So that's just one um, one artist that will be in there for a couple months. And then David Brothers uh, is going to be doing an exhibition of his work starting next February. So. Has he done Has he done anything? Not in a long time. I think he was in a two person show up at Finch Lane many many years ago. But it's been fifteen to twenty years since he displayed his stuff. So I'm really really excited in, to get his work into the gallery. That's He's working great. with Becca. Did you have a hard time talking him into it? Uh no, not after you and I were on set together. We we were in, we were in the pictures together. Yeah, in the in uh, in uh, the uh, rubber room, Trent Harris, the rubber room. Hmm. Yeah. So, so I mean, and uh, David comes to the museum quite often, and so I was able to to chat with him, and so it's been fantastic getting to see his process, his his photographs, and for lack of a better word, his puppets and his sets, and mm-hmm. so I think um, that's a good example of us being able to take an artist that does tremendous things locally that nobody 
nobody really knows. I yeah. mean, if you're in a small community, you know who he is. But um, there's a person that, that does amazing work that really needs to be out there in the public mm-hmm. eye. We have the Projects Gallery, which is specifically for artists living and working in Utah. Um, we have the Kodak Gallery, and that uh, is it's really a black box. It's meant more for video works. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last but not least, we have what's called the Airspace, which is a gallery that's dedicated to show the work of our artists and residents. We have a uh, comprehensive uh, one-year-long artist and residence program where there are six residents at any given time. And so part of their residency, uh, not only are they getting help with artist statements and all of that, but they have to do an exhibition in the museum as part of their residency. It's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff in a yeah. year. It's about 23... 22 to 25 exhibitions a year, depending on how the calendar uh, falls. And that doesn't include things outside the museum or public programs. So. How many, and uh, do you, <clears throat> you know, this is, in a way, I think of this as a, a sort of a, a gem in the community that maybe, well, that probably not enough people really know about. Um, I would think that a lot of people who come to Yamoka stumble across it. Uh, uh, just they're downtown, they're tourists mm-hmm. downtown, and they see the sign and they go, "Huh, well, let's go in there." And it's free. It's free to go in. I mean, mm-hmm. you can you can leave a donation. There's uh, there's a right. box. And, yeah, we try to stiff yeah. army into getting five bucks, but yeah. you know it works to varying degrees of success. Yeah, uh, but I, I think there, and and I don't mean to make it sound insulting, mm-hmm. but I think there are probably a lot of people who just have no idea that it's there. Absolutely. I, th- I certainly th- I think that our location is great for some things and disadvantageous for others. Uh, when you look at the way it's sort of even the trees have grown up on those boulevards with the, I think they're sun locusts or honey locusts or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. A lot of our curb presence is sort of blocked and it's v- architecturally we blend yeah. very well into the Salt Palace and Abravenel Hall. So I think that there would be a lot of opportunities I mean, if you could work with signage and zoning and all of those sort of stuff to differentiate our building from the Salt Palace and Abravenel Hall. Um, Will they let you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Until I have the money to do it, it has been a moot conversation. Could you have David Brothers do something, too? I probably could. You know, I come a little bit from the school of it's better to ask forgiveness than permission, mm. uh, which, especially when you're new to town, you know, uh, you can get away with that pretty well. I didn't know. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know. Uh, now that I've been here a year and a half, I'm starting to uh, to move past that grace period, I think. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, sometimes you just, you know, sometimes you just... Uh, I didn't know I couldn't cut down those, <laughs> those locust those trees. Yeah. <laughs> Why um, is it, though, that, um, you know, like a city like New York City with 8 million people or... Uh, or Paris, like you have museums in these cities that are just a, a part of the culture with every well, you just every member. It. You just said it because they're a part of the culture. Well, how do they become that? I mean, how? I mean, you know, how does that work? How do they become a part of a culture? Well, I don't get it, it. it because they have culture. Yeah, if, you know, if, if we solve this today mm-hmm. at this table, man, I, you know, I'm buying you a hundred lunches. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that there's also a level, trying to be honest and reflexive, there's a little bit of time. You know, Salt Lake City is nowhere near as old. Like, if you're looking at a place like New York, sure. or if you're looking at a place like London or Paris, I mean... But 85 years, the museum's been open. Yeah, and, and which, for a business or a nonprofit, 85 years is pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. You know, all yeah. things considered, uh, if you look at the failure rate of businesses, I mean, nonprofits aren't as high. But, you know, that's a lot to, that's a lot to trumpet, and the fact that this community has kept it going for 85 years is great. Uh, and and I, I never go into work on any day thinking that the community 
the city, the county, the state, or our visit, no one owes no one owes the museum anything. You know, we have mm-hmm. to constantly work to show people why their dollars as a nonprofit are being well spent. I mean, I sort of joke, I have, you know, when you get into this business, you do a lot of development and fundraising, and I certainly have met plenty of people who are um, wealth managers, or they, they take straw and spin it into gold, and I always joke that I take gold and spin it back into straw for you. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, yeah, I think once you start feeling entitled, or once you start feeling that you're irreplaceable, you're on the rapid slope to being replaced. Yeah. And so I never want to go into any day thinking that people owe me anything. But I, I do think it takes time. And I, you know, I've only been here a year and a half. But in my time that I've been here, I hear a lot of people say, like, man, this, this place has changed so much in five years. And, boy, the Olympics sure pushed us forward. And, boy. And I think it, it's, it's hard to – we're very much in a, in a bubble of what's right in front of us. And time, time has this weird thing where what's happening now is, is very present. And, and then it sort of compresses or deep or expands as it moves away from us. And so it's hard to have a, you know, what does 15 years really look like? What does five years really look like? When, uh, you know, we're in an election year and a lot of people are talking about what's Salt Lake City going to look like five, 10, you know, 20 years from now? Well, what does that look like boots on the ground when it looks like, you know, where we were 20 years ago? I mean, that, that, that's a tough thing for them, I think, for us to wrap our minds around. Yeah, I would agree. Um, what is the operating budget? Um, Seven hundred and seventy-seven thousand three hundred and six dollars. Not even, not quite a, not not to a million. Yeah, three quarters, three quarters of a million. That's you're getting a lot. You're <laughs> you're getting a lot out of that money. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know if your listeners particularly care about this, but for me, we ended our last fiscal year in the black, which was the, for the first time in a long, long time. And so, trying to do what it is that we do and provide. Um, you know, engaging contemporary exhibitions while being fiscally responsible is, is, is a challenge. And I'm really, really proud of what we've done. And that's an entire team effort. That's my curators um, creating amazing things and, and doing it while being budget savvy. That's my marketing director finding all sorts of partnerships that we can do and, and ways to get the word out as best we can on limited funds. That's my development team, um, you know, working the phones and the interwebs and all of that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And, and my board supporting me. And so um, I think that there's a lot to be excited for there. And I do think that I see the potential for, I see the potential for strategic growth. I think uh, nonprofits, not even just nonprofits, all of us, if we start believing our press too much, run the risk of trying to expand too quickly uh, in a non-sustainable way. And for, as an executive director of a nonprofit, the thing that's most important to me is protecting my employees and their families and making sure that they can pay their rents and mortgages. Um, if someone has volunteered to work in the nonprofit sector, they have made a conscious decision to make less than they would in the private sector. And so we need to realize that that, that was a choice. And, and if anything else... Um, really be cognizant of the people that have volunteered to, again, put their houses and, and families on the line for our nonprofit mission. So I really want to see good, conscientious, strategic growth that is sustainable. Um, the, uh, the, and there is a lot of community outreach in, at Yamoka. Uh, you have something called the Art Truck. Yeah, the Art Truck. Uh, we just got a brand new one, actually. Well, it's a brand new used one. A new used one. It's new to us. Um, it's uh, it's about 10 feet smaller, and it's got a better engine and better suspension, and so we're going to be able to get all the way to all the corners of Utah. Our poor old Art Truck uh, wasn't so happy trying to get up to, like, Park City and up the mountains and whatnot. So we 
pick an artist that is our art truck artist for the year. We like it if we can wrap it into core curriculum standards. We go to a lot of schools, fairs, and festivals. And so we bring the contemporary art programming to the students. And for a lot of people who are in free and reduced lunch uh, districts where that's a high percentage of the population, that might be the only arts programming they get. You know, um, I think that I, I understand why our leaders have gone with with STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, as a way to sort of jumpstart critical occupations. But at the same time, um, there's an inherent and intrinsic value to arts education, what it does for making you be a critical thinker uh, and problem solver and um, cultural consumer that can't, uh, that is irre- irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. And so for us to go out and sort of provide some of these students with the only arts exposure they have is, is an important thing. And you do go to all all over the state? We are, we're going to be able to now. You know, we, we were doing broader programs several years ago and as our art truck has gotten more and more decrepit we've sort of stayed in the what did i say provo to ogden uh, metroplex Mm -hmm. um just because i was really afraid that our truck would break down but now with the new truck we are st george here we come Mm. uh the uh and where does most of that 700 dollar budget come from so, from a bunch of people, our single our single largest funder is actually it, it's you guys. It comes from the Zap Tax, which for those of you who don't know is Zoo Arts and Parks, and it's a point one percent sales tax of everything in Salt Lake County. Um, and so we uh, we are a tier one organization. Um, that was me knocking on wood because we have to reapply every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but Zap uh, Zap is our single largest funder, and the nice thing about Zap is um, it goes to general operating funds. Um, as a person, you know, when you're fundraising, targeted funds are the easiest thing to get, and especially education. Um, there's a lot of different foundations and organizations and people that are willing to give to education, exhibitions. But trying to find um, unencumbered money that people will let you use to buy toilet paper or whatever it happens to be. It's, pay the lights. It's, pay the lights. It's significantly less sexy, so it's harder to do. So that's mm-hmm. the great thing about Zap. Um, you know, we have, uh, we have corporations in town that have uh, philanthropically stepped up, uh, Zions Bank. Wells Fargo, um, X Mission, uh, Epic Brewing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure without the wall in front of me um, that there are some Wasatch advisors. I feel like once once I start down this list, yeah, I feel like I have to be yeah, comprehensive or I'm leaving somebody off. And then, of course, there's foundational support, too, from um, both national and local philanthropic foundations mm-hmm. that fill in. And then you start getting into uh, individual donors and members. So, and then you do fundraisers. Yeah, we do fundraisers. Mm-hmm. Um so it's it's a broad it's a broad spectrum. What's coming up at Yumoka? Uh, in in you're closed as we are recording this, you're closed. But we'll we'll reopen on Friday. So before this even comes out, okay. we will be uh, we will be back up and running. So let's see. And that it's closed for no other reason other than they're just uh, putting in some new shows and. Yeah, ab- yeah, exactly. There's no, there's no problems. There's no there's no problems. We just. Um, because giant cockroaches. <laughs> These co- they're carrying away the art. See, I was going to say something about outdoor retailers, but that has nothing to do with giant cockroaches. No, outdoor retailers comes twice a year, and so basically we we mesh our deinstall reinstall schedule to coincide with OR because mm-hmm. OR is um, OR is hard for. It's just for hard us. to find a yeah. place to park downtown yeah. and exactly. You know, yeah. So the main thing to remember is the last Friday in August. Is that the 28th, I believe? I think it is, yeah. So August 28th, basically, 
the entire museum uh, is going to be having a, a shindig to reopen the museum. Um, exhibitions will be open starting this Friday, so we will be open to the public mm-hmm. again this week. But in terms of marking your calendars to come down and celebrate uh, five amazing exhibitions, that's the night to do it. We're open from 7 to 9. There'll be refreshments. There'll be a bar. All of the things that people like, some mm-hmm. fantastic art, and the first time to see some of these works. Okay. Uh, and uh, and the, when is that the David Brothers show? Does no, David Brothers isn't until February. In February. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Gary Vlasic is doing a yep. big deal. Gary Vlasic is doing an exhibition called Mall, which is really sort of looking at um, what the concept of purchasing things and where the consumer and the maker sort of meet when you used to have brick and mortar and now you're moving more and more into the Internet. Um, and even in terms of digital fabrication in that way. So really looking at the way that people purchase in our consumers, um, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time working with makers that make very sort of one-off and crafted things. Mm-hmm. And so that exhibition will open on this Friday. So that will be open. By the, by the time your listeners hear this, that will be open. Okay. So um, and, Performance aren't very, uh, very often down there? Um, we do have performance art from time to time. It isn't scheduled in, uh, on a regular basis. We, I've noticed we've been partnering with a lot of our local contemporary dance companies, uh, interestingly. So people have been coming down and it seems like, uh, we were doing about three or four partnerships with, uh, our local contemporary dance companies a year. People coming in and using the artwork in the space as sort of the jumping off point for, mm-hmm. uh, for a dance performance. So I think we've got it. Got it? Yeah. Anything we need to add that you can think of? I um, we're I don't know. Our hours, so yeah. Uh, How are you doing? How's radio from hell? Uh, good. How many years have you been doing that? Eighty-five yet? No, not quite. I, you know, I, people ask me that all the time, and, I, and then I have to ask Richie, our producer. How many years? Have I? About thirty-five. It's no. Well, well, I've been I've been doing radio since nineteen eighty. Yeah. Carrie and I've been doing radio since nineteen eighty-six. So and. There yeah. you go. So your your thirtieth anniversary will coincide with our eighty fifth anniversary. Are you? Yeah. You'll do a big deal with that? Yeah, we're going to do a eighty five for eighty five celebration, and that will uh, we're going to be kicking that off before too long, and that hopefully will culminate next February in around the same time that we do the opening for David Brothers and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. We'll be able to sort of launch that because that will right around David Brothers show will be the exact day of our 85th anniversary cool well long live contemporary art yeah here here uh, and, and as it becomes fine art yeah it goes into being historical and yeah, yeah contemporary is always moving I guess yeah, yeah. Well, th- uh, thank you very much for having me Christian, I really really appreciate Christian it Christian Anderson is a pleasure um, and uh, anything I can do just let me know sounds good All thank right. you very much gentlemen thank you alright uh, that's it uh, the Let's Go Eat show uh Christian Anderson, uh, director of the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, Yamoka. Uh, thanks to Dylan for producing the show. Thanks to the Cafe at 50 West for the French fries and the uh, pita and uh, hummus and everything else we had. Thanks uh, to uh, Mike and John who uh, run the place. And uh, I guess that's it. Just uh, remember, if you're pouring drinks, always make mine a double. Double.